Good morning. Good morning. My name is Christian. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, it's a pleasure to have you with us as we worship. Man, uh, that was actually Cole's idea to sing that song right before. We were talking through the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning in the book of Matthew. We've been going through the book of Matthew, again, as Steve mentioned, talking about this idea of apprenticing with Jesus. Last week, we took a whole Sunday just to read through the next section of the book that we'll be in this summer, chapters 11, 12, and 13. So if you have a Bible or you, you need a Bible, the ushers would love to put one in your hands, but you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 11. And here's why I think that song that we just sang is it's a wonderful song, but it was so appropriate for what we're looking, gonna look at this morning. So much of the language and the imagery in that song comes from a passage in Revelation 5, where John is given this vision, basically of, of basically the whole world waiting for culmination, for God to, to bring things to resolution. And it's the vision that he sees is in the form of this scroll that has all these wax seals on it. And the question that's asked is, is there anyone who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll and bring all of history to its proper conclusion and resolution? Is there anyone and no one is found in heaven or on earth. And John in the vision, he says, I started to weep because there was no one found worthy. And then when someone speaks to John and says, don't worry, take heart, there is someone who's worthy. You know who it is? It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the one who's worthy. So the, the, the word that's given to him to think about is, look for this mighty lion. He's the one who can do this. And then when John turns to look for this mighty lion, what does he see? A little lamb with a gaping wound that had been slain. That's the lion of Judah. That's the worthy one that can bring all of history to its conclusion. The picture, of course, is of Jesus, right? But again, think about the difference between what John expected when he heard those words, turn and see a mighty lion, and then the reality when he turns and he sees this lamb who was slain. That, I guess, is a great way of thinking about what this whole section of Matthew is about that we're gonna be in over this summer. The difference between the expectations, even good expectations from God's word about what Jesus, what the Messiah would come and do, and then the unexpected reality of the way that Jesus did those things. Have you ever dealt with that in your life, like a, a, a tension created between your expectations of something and the reality of what it was like to experience it? I mean, you can think about something trivial, like, like a movie. Someone says, oh my gosh, this new movie came out. You gotta see it, it's so good. They build it up really good and there's always a risk that, to that, right? They go, oh my gosh, this person made this thing sound like the best thing ever and you pay your whatever $30 it is now to go see a movie. And you go, oh my gosh, I could have just waited for that to come on Netflix or something like that, right? It didn't live up to the expectations. I remember uh, several years back when my family were looking for a new home. We had, we'd had our fourth child, Lucy, who's almost nine now, so this is a while ago. But um, oh, she is nine now. But um, we were looking for a house that, that would fit us, that we would grow into. And we realized very quickly the difference between expectation and reality as we looked at listings of houses and then would go and see those houses. You ever done that? Like it's amazing what a fisheye lens on a camera can do to make that, that living room seem palatial. And it's like, okay, we could fit a love seat in it, right? Like, the expectation and the reality is different. And again, we all know what that's like. Sometimes the disappointment of a disappointed expectation, or even sometimes the pleasant surprise when something is better than you expected, right? 
And again, the stakes get bigger the more serious the, 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 the topic is around which we have those expectations. It's one thing to be disappointed in a movie, but to have disappointed expectations in marriage, that's a whole different load to carry, isn't it? Or a career, you go through school, you get a bunch of debt from that, and then you finally get your career and you're finally doing it, and you're like, is this all that it was? I don't even know if I like this, right? Or maybe, maybe, there, maybe there are things you love about it, but you realize that sometimes, you know, you start out in a company and to actually get to the point to do the things that you wanna do, you're talking years of moving through the machinations of the corporation in order to actually do the thing that you were passionate about doing at the beginning. We recognize that oftentimes some of the biggest growth opportunities or struggles in our lives come when we have, to dis, we have to respond to that gap, the tension created between our expectations of something and the reality of it. That's what this whole period of Matthew 11 through 13 is all about. The expectations that people had of their Messiah when he came, that Israel had of their Messiah when he came, and then the reality of the way that Jesus acted as Messiah. So even before we jump into our passage at the beginning of Matthew 11, I just want to take a couple more minutes just to lay out the, the idea, some of the, the tensions, that gap that was created between expectations and reality. Here are some of just kind of the common expectations, not even all wrong. A lot of these are rooted in Old Testament promises, but that different groups within Israel hung their hopes for what this Messiah, this promised king would do. Some really put all their eggs in the basket of like a political or military revolution. Jesus or the Messiah is going to come on the scene and he's going to lead us in battle against the Romans, kick them out, make Israel the center of this new world empire and rule over everything forever. And so the way to get ready for that Messiah is basically to form a militia and get the troops ready to go. So that way when Messiah comes, he goes, hey, way to go, way to get the troops ready for me. Now let's go. Other groups looked at it and said, no, what, what the Messiah is really going to come to do is religious reform. He's going to, to uh, recommit the people to fulfill God's law. And so what we want to do is we want to be as careful as we possibly can to obey God's law. And because we really don't want to uh, um, break God's law, let's make a bunch of other rules outside of God's law so we never even get close to breaking God's law and let's hold people to those. This would be like the Pharisees, right? And they expected when Messiah came, he would go, man, high five, way to get the people ready. You were on the right track. Other people were just expecting this idea of judgment. The Messiah is gonna come and he's gonna kick butt and take names. He is going to judge the wicked. He is gonna vindicate the righteous and he's gonna make everything new. And again, I would say all of those are not wrong, but what happened was a lot of groups at the time put all their hopes on one of those and expected when Messiah came, he would agree with them. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and he doesn't side with any of those different groups. As a matter of fact, his initial message to all of them was the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so repent. Whatever you've been doing, turn and trust and follow me. Come be a part of what I'm doing, regardless of what you were doing. That created a lot of tension for people. We totally thought when Messiah came, he would agree with us. And now he's calling us to repent? What do we do now, right? So much of it is that gap between, and how you respond to that gap between expectation and reality. 
Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, one thing, um, the, the guys at the Bible Project, great organization. If you've ever been to BibleProject.com, they've got incredible free resources and videos to help you understand your Bible. They do these big posters that lay out Bible books. And the one that they do for Matthew is really awesome. And so I just basically just cut and blew up the section that they do on this section of Matthew. This is really helpful. Keep this as like a roadmap in your head for what we do over the course of this summer. Chapters 11 through 13 of Matthew are all about people beginning to respond to Jesus. They've been seeing him do different things and teach and heal and different things. And now they're starting to make up their minds about him. Some positively, right? Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, some like we'll see today with John the Baptist. I don't know, is he? It's not quite what we expected. Or even some that start to make up their minds negatively. He can't be the Messiah. He's empowered by Satan, right? And then that chapter 13, the last chapter we read last Sunday that has all the parables, the stories, the kingdom of heaven's like a farmer who threw his seed all over the place and some died and some grew. The kingdom of heaven's like a guy who planted good seed in his field, but an enemy sowed wheat. The kingdom of heaven's like a mustard seed. All, all of those different parables in chapter 13 are basically Jesus's commentary on this gap between expectations and reality. It's him explaining what his kingdom, the good rule of God is like in reality, but in comparison to what people might've expected. If you were looking for something big and huge and overwhelming, and I tell you that the kingdom of heaven's like a mustard seed, that's pretty easy to miss, isn't it? But if it is the kingdom of heaven, don't miss it, right? So here's what I wanna do. As we jump into this passage, I wanna just give you, I kinda of have some application questions I had planned for the end. And I was like, let me give them to you off the front end and keep these in mind. Because I think in the same way that the people of Israel wrestled with that gap between expectations and reality, we can do the same thing, can't we? So here's the questions I want you to keep in mind. As you follow Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, or even I would say, if you're considering following Jesus, what are your expectations and desires for your life? Even like try to think it out. If you journal or you take notes, try to write it out. What really are those things that I expect and want out of my life? Because those tend to be the things we pray about, right? Those tend to be the things we ask God for, or perhaps can even be disappointed with God if he doesn't give us. Which is why the second question is so important. Not just what are your expectations, but do those expectations line up with what God has promised in his word, what he calls you to as a follower of Jesus? So this is the first two. The third question, kind of in light of that, is if those expectations or desires do not line up with what God has called you to, are you willing, like Jesus said, to turn, to repent, to trust God's promises, even though they might be different than what you wanted? The fourth one that's really pivotal to what Jesus says to John the Baptist, if your expectations are in line with what God has promised, even then, are you willing to trust God to fulfill those promises in his way and in his timing as he sees fit? I'll leave that up for just another second. I see a few of y'all still taking pictures. But again, keep this in mind. We'll come back to this toward the end as well. Now. Gosh, I'm already 10 minutes in. Let's look at the passage we're going to look at this morning. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Read along with me. It'll be up on, on the screen. We've stood enough. I usually we'll make you stand, but we can go ahead and stay sitting, sitting for this one. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, 
he sent word by his disciples and said to them, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, John began to speak to the, or Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Truly, or from, from the, I'm sorry, I lost my place. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, a sad song, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man comes eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Let's jump into this together. Okay, we're going to move quickly through it in the time that we have, but I think that there's something good about keeping this whole um, passage together in one week because it all has to do with John the Baptist in relation to Jesus. Kind of the first part that we looked at talks about more John's expectations of Jesus versus the reality of what Jesus was doing. And then the second part of it talks about the people's expectations of John in relation to what John was doing. And at the very end, Jesus makes the statement when he goes, look, you found reasons to, to dismiss both of us, but the wisdom with which we both operated, even though we did things differently, it will be justified or vindicated in the end. Does that make sense? That's where we're gonna go. So let's go back now to, to verse two. In verse two, the very first thing that Matthew tells us about John is that he's in prison. I think that's a key thing to keep in mind in this whole interlude about what's going on with John. If you remember, John the Baptist was this one, like Jesus says, a prophet who was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. But back in chapter three, we find out that it was when Jesus heard that John had been arrested and put in prison that he goes, ding, ding, it's time to start my ministry. John's arrest was the signal for Jesus to begin preaching the same message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And basically by cluing us back in that John's in prison, what Matthew is doing is he's letting us know that whole time 
that Jesus began teaching and preaching and healing and from town to town, John has been in prison that whole time. He's been hearing these stories about what Jesus is doing, and yet he's still in prison. Do you think that's what John expected? Many commentators think that that is a huge part of the doubts that John has about Jesus at this point. He's been languishing and suffering in prison for quite a while. And man, if you've ever gone through a prolonged period of suffering, you know you reach a point where you kind of go, I don't know what's what anymore. I don't know which way's up. He's beginning to question things that perhaps he'd never questioned before. Is it just because he's at such a low, depressed point? That could be. And another reason that he could be doubting Jesus at this moment is kind of based upon what I talked about at the beginning. Because what Jesus was doing didn't necessarily match up with John's expectations of what he thought Jesus would do, or even what he told people the Messiah would do when he came. If you remember back in chapter three, Bob uh, was the one who preached on this passage. When we go to chapter three and we see what John was originally saying to people, it seems that John expected that as soon as Messiah came on scene, judgment would come quickly. He would bring judgment on evildoers. He would vindicate or, or prove right those who trusted in God. Remember, he said, y'all gotta get ready. You need to repent because it's like the ax is already at the root of the trees and Jesus is about, or the Messiah is about to start chopping stuff down. He said, the Messiah is gonna come and it's gonna be harvest time. He will gather his wheat, the righteous ones into his barn, but the chaff, the worthless ones, he will burn with fire. That being the message, the frame of reference that, Jesus, that John gave to the people, now he's sitting in prison hearing, okay, this is, this is cool and all. Jesus is teaching some really good stuff and he's healing people kind of out amongst these outskirt towns. But where's that judgment that I told everybody to watch out for? Like, could it be that within John's question, there's even a little bit of impatience? Like, Jesus, the teaching and the healing and all that kind of stuff is cool, but can we move things on a little bit? Because meanwhile, as you're teaching and healing, evil people are still prospering and righteous people like me who have honestly sought to serve the Lord keep getting the raw end of the deal. So can we move this on? Is there impatience in John? Can you relate to that at all in your walk with the Lord? A gap between your expectations, perhaps at that moment when you came to faith in Jesus, oh my gosh, this is gonna change everything. Yes, it will, but not overnight. I didn't think I would still be struggling with this to the degree that I am now, right? Do you ever feel a sense of impatience with God's timing? You hear stories on the news of just atrocious things that people do to each other. And I know for me, there's times I read those stories and I go, God, I know you see this. And I know you're able to do something about it. So what are you waiting for? Do you ever feel that? Perhaps in a personal experience, prolonged suffering, hardship in your own life, those times where you go, gosh, I want this to be over, but it's not. And it's hard to trust God in the waiting, right? It's hard to trust God's goodness. Like, what, what are you making me wait for? I bet you all those thoughts and more are going through John's head as he's sitting there languishing in prison. And so he sends his disciples with this really honest question for Jesus. And I think Jesus responds with an equally honest answer that is 
so gracious and yet so pointed. And it's not just directed at John, it's directed at you and I too. So listen up to what Jesus says here. Look at verse four. He says, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. I think both of those are key. What you hear and what you see. In Matthew's account, he just goes right to what Jesus says. In Luke 7, the same account in Luke's gospel, he says at the same hour that these guys came from John to Jesus, Jesus was actively healing people and delivering them from different sicknesses and making blind people see. So he says, literally, go tell John the things you saw me do, which are the very things he goes on to say. But what he says here, I think in verses five and six, he's not just listing out his activities. He says, go tell John what you hear because the words that Jesus uses right here are really specific. He is purposefully quoting from Old Testament promises about uh, of things that God would do. Let me show this to you. We could do a whole message just on these and hopefully the colors came out. I tried to pick the brightest colors I could. But as you look at it, you can see as he's going through, there are particular things that Jesus is quoting from. All of these, at least, there's other passages that I could have gone to, but I just pulled the ones that are from Isaiah. Jesus is basically having a conversation with John about Isaiah and his actions. The blind receiving their sight, lame walking, deaf hearing, Isaiah 29 and 35 talk about that. The dead being raised up. Man, we could go into all of these. But again, why is Jesus doing this? This is such a gracious thing. He says, go back and tell John, I know it's rough right now. I know this may not be what you expected, but don't miss this. I am doing the deeds of Messiah. I am fulfilling the promises of God. And I think there's something even more significant here because what he says to him is the passages that he quotes from here in Isaiah, the one that's in purple, probably the hardest to see, unfortunately, from Isaiah 61. That one's clearly about the Messiah, the anointed one, one who is anointed by the spirit of God to preach good news to the poor. The other ones, Isaiah 29, 35, 26, and Isaiah 8, those actually are describing deeds, actions that God, Yahweh himself would do. Think about that for a second. I think that detail is really significant, and I think that John himself would have totally picked up on that. Think about the gracious way in which Jesus is meeting John at this point of his doubts. He's saying, don't lose heart. I know this isn't the way you expected it to go, but not only am I doing the deeds of Messiah, I am doing the deeds of God himself. That's who I am. Trust me. Several of the commentaries I looked at this week kind of confirmed the same thing, that this is a not so subtle clue to John of Jesus's divinity, his deity, that he is God. I am doing the works of Yahweh himself. How amazing, how encouraging would that have been to John, even though he's still in prison. Look a little closer though at verse six. This one's actually really uh, powerful. And I would say this is actually key to this whole section of Matthew. What he says there in verse six, where he said, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. That word offended is a kind of a fun Greek word. It's the, the Greek word is skandalizo. You can probably hear an English word at the beginning there, right? What's that word? Scandal. Blessed is the one who's not scandalized by me. Now, we use scandal for weird TMZ kind of news, like, like, did you hear what this celebrity did? Like that kind of cheesy stuff. 
That's not what it's talking about here. It's not like Jesus has some skeletons in the closet he's trying to keep hidden. The word scandalized or to, to, uh, to be offended here, it can mean to be tripped up, to be trapped, to stumble over something. That's what he's saying to John. He's saying, blessed is the one who isn't tripped up by me in the way that I'm doing things, who doesn't stumble over the unexpected way that I'm bringing the kingdom of God. The same word scandalizo, it, it comes up at the very end of this section of Matthew 11 through 13. I think in some ways it forms the bookends that frame everything in the middle. Later on in chapter 13, verse 57, when it talks about Jesus coming to his hometown of Nazareth and people rejecting him because they're like, we know you, you grew up here. Your brothers and sisters are running around right now. You can't possibly be the Messiah. A kid from Nazareth? Like, that's too common. We expect the Messiah to be exceptional in Jesus. You're not that exceptional. They tripped over him. They were offended by him. This whole section, again, is what do you do in the tension between your expectations and the reality? Are you willing to submit your expectations to the reality of who Jesus is and what he did? Or will you trip over him and reject him because he's not who you thought he would be? That's the purpose of this whole point in the book of uh, Matthew. But let's keep going here for just a second because after Jesus sends the disciples of John away with these really encouraging but pointed words, not only for John, but for us, don't trip over the unexpected way Jesus is bringing the kingdom. He also turns to the crowds after that, and he says, in the same way, though, I don't want you to trip over the unexpected way that John's life has played out. I mean, there was an initial buzz and fervor over what John was doing. People are coming from all over the place to come see him out in the wilderness, but he's been in prison for a while now. And I would imagine that the people of Israel had about the same short-term memory that we did. Oh, what was that thing we all got excited about a while ago? Why did we go out to the wilderness? It was hot and sticky. Like, what was all that about? Jesus kind of jogs their memory, right? Look at this. He began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And he has, I think, this kind of like call and response interaction with the crowds. He's, Jesus is a little bit playful here, almost sarcastic. What'd you go out in the wilderness to see? When all y'all were going out to the wilderness to John, why'd you go out there? What was it about? Do you remember? Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? Like literally, did you just go out to see the plants and wildlife? Or, or more metaphorically, did you go out to see somebody who was like a reed that just took a slight breeze to blow him over? Like, were you attracted to John because he was a pushover? No, of course not, right? I like it. <laughs> Little musical interlude as I'm teaching here. It's good. You, John wasn't a pushover, was he? He was fiery. He spoke truth to power, didn't he? That's why he got thrown in prison. We find out later in chapter 14, the whole reason why John's in prison is because he had the guts to call out Herod the king for stealing his brother's wife to be his own wife. That's not what God's word says. Oh yeah, I'm the king, you're in jail. He wasn't a reed shaken by the wind. That's not why you were attracted to John. Okay, then what did you go out to see? Some dude dressed up all nice and fine and soft clothing? Of course not. We find out basically John wore a camel skin with a leather belt around his waist. And again, Jesus is like, being, it's like, you want to look for the people in the soft clothing, go look in the palaces. That ain't where John was, right? That's not what drew you to him. 
So then he says again, what did you go out to see? And I imagine this is the point where someone in the crowds kind of gets up the guts to say, a prophet. John was a prophet. A prophet, you say? Is that what you think? Yeah. Yes, he was. He was a prophet, but I tell you, he was even more than a prophet. He quotes from another Old Testament passage. There's so much Old Testament conversation in this passage. He's the guy that Malachi talked about who would prepare the way before Yahweh before he came to the temple. That's who John is. Ding, ding. What does that mean for who Jesus thinks he is? I think another little subtle clue that Jesus is more than meets the eye. But that's who John was. Truly, I say to you, verse 11, think about this. These are words from the mouth of Jesus about John the Baptist. You really can't get better praise than this. Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. I know he's in prison. I know the buzz around him has died down, but John was a big deal and you need to remember that is what Jesus is saying here. There's been no one, basically he is the greatest living human up to that point. There might've been other prophets in Israel's history that had greater ministries or uh, bigger impact or did more miracles. Or maybe we have more of their writings still that tell us these promises about what God would do. But Jesus says, no, John tops them all. Not necessarily because of his personality or his list of accomplishments, but because of the role that God gave him to play within his story. See, all those other prophets like Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, and so forth, they all got to talk about future things that God would do, about this Messiah who would come. None of them got to be there on the scene to see Messiah take center stage. None of them got to be the literal one to pass the baton from the old covenant to the new covenant that Jesus would do, right? That's what Jesus, Jesus goes on to say. He goes, let me go past it real quick. All the law and the prophets prophesied until John. He's kind of the last and the greatest of that whole Old Testament era. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah that's to come. We'll come back to that in just a second. But did you catch what Jesus says at the end of verse 11? There's no one greater than John the Baptist yet. The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Again, don't trip over this. There's a lot to trip over here. On the one hand, don't, make, don't have this make you think that somehow within Jesus' kingdom, there's like this really highly structured tier system and there's gonna be some of us who get relegated to the least. I think Jesus is, is, he's more talking for the sake of comparison. If John's the greatest of that Old Testament era, there is something that has arrived with me that is so much better that even if you're on the low end of the totem pole in the kingdom of heaven, you have a greater, more prominent, more privileged position than even John the Baptist had. What Jesus is saying here is not a knock on John the Baptist. This is an emphatic statement of Jesus saying, what I am doing is greater and better and more important than everything that has come before. This is the climax of the story with Jesus on the scene. Understand who this Jesus is. But yet he makes this statement where he says, verse 14, if you are willing to accept it, Eli um, John is the Elijah who is to come. Another place where Jesus quotes from the Old Testament. 
Do you think that as disciples of Jesus, as apprentices of Jesus, Jesus wants us to know our Old Testaments? I think so. To understand who he is and what he's done, he is calling us as his people to know and live in the entirety of our Bibles. Later on in chapter 13, the very last parable he gives, he says every disciple, every, every person who's discipled for the kingdom needs to be one who is able to bring out these treasures that are new and old, hold the new and the old together. There's a lot we're meant to learn and model from the example of Jesus here. But with a little bit of time that we have left, let's go to this one. This one's really powerful, both for our understanding of who Jesus is and what we should expect to come. The one that Jesus quotes from when he talks about John being this Elijah figure comes from the book of Malachi chapter four. Malachi was the last prophet before John came. And these are the last words of the last prophet before John. And here's what he says, speaking on behalf of the Lord. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of their children, of, of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Malachi prophesied that this Elijah type figure would come, and his role was to turn the hearts of God's people back to each other, to love each other rightly. But yet there's a warning in this passage, isn't there? Basically, if you don't listen, if you don't, if your hearts are not turned by this Elijah, I will come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And Jesus says, that's who John is. He is that Elijah. But then he makes this really interesting statement there. He is that Elijah if you're willing to accept it. If you're willing to, like... Jesus mean it's, it's like, well, it's true if I want it to be true? I don't think Jesus is being a relativist here. It's, it's your truth. It's true for you if you want it to be. What he's doing is he's issuing a challenge to the people. And he goes, if you're willing to accept John as Elijah, the reality is he is that Elijah figure, whether you accept it or not. But if you don't accept him as the one sent to turn your hearts and prepare you for Messiah to come, if you trip over John because he isn't what you expected, you will absolutely trip over me. So the question again is, how did the people respond to John? Yeah, they all flocked to him at the beginning. They got super excited. A bunch of them got baptized even by John to say, I want Messiah to come. But what about now? Now that the fervor died down, now that things have gotten back to normal, in many ways, I think Jesus is hinting about what he'll talk about later in that parable of the sower, that as the seed goes out, there are some people, they grab onto it and they love it at first. But when persecution comes because of the, that message or because of the cares of this world and desire for possessions, it chokes it out and they remain unfruitful. If you're willing to accept it, where, hold on, wait, where is John right now again? He's in prison. Herod was unwilling to accept what John said and chucked him in prison. Does that sound like turning the hearts of the people toward their children and the children of their fathers? Doesn't sound like it to me. 
So what is left for the people other than the decree of utter destruction that God said he would bring? Keep this in mind. That very judgment that John expected the Messiah to bring quickly, it is still coming. It is a true expectation. John needed to learn to wait on God's timing. But here's what's so important for us to understand. Before God's kingdom comes in judgment, it comes first in suffering. It comes first in suffering. Look at verse 12. This is a tough verse to translate, but here's the main idea. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of, of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Again, there's different ways that people translate it. It's actually one of those verses there's, a, there's different opinions on. But I think in the flow of everything that's being talked about, I think here's Jesus's point. John came announcing that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And though a lot of people flocked to him initially, John suffered violence at the hands of Herod. And I think what Jesus is saying is, expect that same trend to continue. Expect that the messengers of God's kingdom will continue to suffer violence and be taken by force by those who are opposed to that message. I mean, think about the last chapter that Todd took us through as Jesus sends the 12 guys out on their first missionary journey. If they, they call me Beelzebub, Satan, how should you expect them to treat you? Jesus is setting their expectations in light with the reality of what they would experience there, right? You will be hated by all people for my name's sake. And yet my spirit will empower you to witness even in those moments. Jesus is saying, this is the way that the kingdom of God moves forward right now. Not as an unstoppable force of power and victory, but often through something that looks like suffering, and vi suffering violence and mistreatment. That sounds backwards, doesn't it? That sounds upside down, not the way that we would have expected it. And Jesus says, yeah, the kingdom of heaven, it's like this mustard seed. If you're looking for an unstoppable force, you will miss it. But if instead you have eyes to see by the grace of God, that even this small thing that looks easily defeatable, you defeat this king and what happens three days later? He rises again. This is the kingdom of heaven and it will grow and grow and grow. As one commentator says it here in verse 12 is one of those places we see throughout the book of Matthew where the shadow of the cross falls over Jesus's path. He knows what's coming. Blessed are those who don't trip over Jesus and yet Jesus knows many will trip over him. And when they trip over him, they won't just stop at being offended and going away. They will violently oppose him. They will reject him. They will kill him. And this is the kingdom of heaven. He will raise victorious on the other side, but it will seem backwards to us. I think that's this last part here. When Jesus talks about this whole idea of these kids calling in the marketplace, his whole point there is basically just to say, 
You know, sometimes when kids are playing together and they can't figure out a game that they all want to play, there's always one of them that goes, nah, I don't want to do that. Or maybe there's like that one bossy kid who just wants everyone to play their game. And after a while, they can't figure out why they're alone. No one wants to play. Why won't everybody just do what I say? Jesus goes, this is what y'all are like. No matter what, John and I are on the same mission. We went about things very differently and let you found reasons to nitpick both of us. You found reasons to miss us and to dismiss us because we weren't what you were looking for. But then he says that statement at the end, yet wisdom is justified or proved right by her deeds. In the end, no matter how many reasons people found to dismiss both Jesus and John, Jesus says at the end, it will be demonstrated the wisdom with which we both operated. I think there is great comfort for us to take from these words of Jesus here at the end. Do you ever feel silly for believing this? Have you ever had other people treat you as silly for believing this? Pat you on the said, oh, that's a cute thing. I'm glad you do that. But like, no, 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 I, I wouldn't buy into that. Jesus knows what it's like to be misunderstood, to not be what people were looking for. And yet he says, in the end, the wisdom with which I operated will be demonstrated. And if you trust in Jesus, believer, listen to me right now. If you're a disciple of Jesus, though at times we feel foolish, though at times the very message we proclaim feels, seems foolish to others, we will not be proven fools in the end. Do you believe that? If you are in a time right now of doubt or intense suffering, Jesus says wisdom is justified by her deeds. Remember the deeds of Jesus. Remember the way that Jesus himself answered John in the moment of his doubt and suffering. The blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised. Good news is preached. Don't trip over this. The actions of Jesus are not the actions of a crazy person or some charlatan TV preacher who wants to just bang you on the head and take your money. These are not the actions of a trickster. These are not even just the actions of a good moral teacher, which is the way many people want to dismiss Jesus. The deeds of Jesus are the acts of God, the Son of God, and he will be demonstrated. Remember the deeds of Jesus, and that in spite of the beautiful deeds of Jesus, his people still rejected him and killed him, and yet Jesus is risen indeed. Amen? Amen. There are times where we will feel foolish, but wisdom will be demonstrated by her deeds in the end. We're going to sing a song before we close. It's a, it's a famous hymn called Be Thou My Vision. Talking about, Lord, would you give us your eyes to see? Would you align our expectations to what you want? The second verse, literally, Jesus, would you be our wisdom and our guide? Would you help us to see things the way that you do, right? And let me just say this to those of you maybe who are here today who are not yet followers of Jesus. Let me move on. For the past 2,000 years, as Christians have continued to communicate this same message, people have continued to write it off as foolish. 
Again, it's like Jesus said, this, method, this seed goes everywhere. Some reject it offhand, some last for a while and fizzle out. But others believe and bear fruit. I love the way John, I think he's actually reflecting on the words of Jesus here when he goes, I get it. Oftentimes the message that we preach sounds foolish to people. It's something to trip over, really. The solution to all the problems of the world is a guy who died and you say rose again 2,000 years ago. You think that's gonna fix everything? Yes, we do. And I love this, what Paul says here. He says, it pleased God that through the folly, the seeming foolishness of that message that we preach, God uses that to save people. Yeah, some people see it as foolish. Some people see it as just something to trip over. But for those who are called, Jesus is the wisdom of God and the power of God. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, today is the day to come to him. If you keep on trying to make him fit your expectations, you will trip over him every time. But if indeed you come to him on his terms, Jesus, would you show me who you are? I believe God will meet you there. If you wanna to talk to someone or pray with someone, the prayer room will be open. But for now, would you stand together and let us sing and ask God to give us his vision, amen?